welcome to another episode of Let's Talk WEM Season 2. I'm delighted that you're joining us. Over the season, we're getting into the detail behind the really big issues that are critical to the way that we manage our water and more broadly our environment. We're speaking to leading figures in the environmental sector from around the world and practitioners, including many SIWEM members, who are making a difference every day through their work. We're grateful to our series sponsor, Thames Water, whose support across this full season means that we can share these conversations with you. And we're also delighted that for this episode on COP26, we're sponsored by Morrison Water Services. A huge thanks to both organisations for their support of Let's Talk WEM. I'm Nikki Roach. I'm the president of SIWEM, which is the Chartered Institution of Water and Environmental Management. We've got a fantastic interview coming up in a moment with Chris Stark, Chief Executive of the Climate Change Committee. But before we hear from Chris, here to explain more about COP26 and share his reflections on the importance of the COP for the water and environment sector, I'm joined by another fantastic co-host, Dr Mark Fletcher. Welcome, Mark. I'm really pleased you're here. Thanks, Nikki. Happy to join you. Mark's the global water leader at Arup, and he's spent more than 30 years in water management across the whole of the water cycle. His work really is truly international, even during a global pandemic. So, as usual, Mark and I are going to listen to our guest interview together and then we'll discuss his reflections. Our guest interview today is with Chris Stark, the CEO of the Climate Change Committee, the UK's statutory climate advisors. Chris led the committee's work to recommend a net zero target for the UK and he's developed detailed advice on the path to carbon neutrality. It's a powerful interview and I was really surprised and interested to hear Chris articulate so clearly how straightforward some of the solutions to the climate crisis are. It's actually quite simple what we need to do overall. We've got to get from where we are today, which is this high carbon economy. It may be, high, it may be lower carbon than other economies, but it's still high carbon. We've got to stop using fossil fuels. We've got to try and decarbonise electricity supplies and our energy supplies as far as we can. And then we've got to start using those clean energy supplies actively across the economy. And then that's not enough because you've got to do a bit more than that. You've got to start restoring nature and storing more carbon in the natural world. And you've also got to, along the way, change demand a little bit for the high carbon stuff that we that we use at the moment. That's the sort of in outline what needs to happen. So, Mark, before we head to our interview with Chris, you've got a wealth of experience attending COP meetings. Can you start by telling us what COP26 is all about? COP itself is the conference of the parties. It's organised by the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and it's about countries coming together, agreeing national commitments to reduce carbon emissions so that we can manage climate change and global warming. A big conference really, but with a diplomatic element and also uh, an opportunity to engage with NGOs and the wider public around the world around climate related issues. Perfect. Well, let's get into the big interview and hear all about it from Chris. Let's get started with a really a really easy one. For COP26, Chris, what would success look like for you? Ooh, I have a lot personally writing on this, I feel. I live in Glasgow. I am born in Glasgow. I'm a Glaswegian. So there's a sort of story of success that I would like to be associated with my home city. I think if this is going to be a successful COP, the kind of glib answer to your question is that people are going to have to refer to it as a successful COP afterwards. And that's what happened in Paris. Paris was crafted into this very successful moment, thanks especially to the French diplomacy and a strongly supportive US administration. And I feel like we need another one of those moments for Glasgow. We are, of course, going to have to discuss the kind of main topic, I suppose, for COP26 is keeping alive one and a half degrees as a temperature outcome. The central premise of that is that we need these net zero targets to be in place by mid-century across the world. I have a feeling we'll do well on that. 
the harder thing is keeping open this idea of a more ambitious trajectory to that goal, to the 2030 targets. And I think if, if we're going to have a successful COP, people are going to need to feel like those two issues have substantially progressed alongside some of the other big issues that are already an issue for, for COPs and have blighted previous COPs about the funding of progress in the developing world and, of course, how well we respond to climate change itself. But the kind of the central answer to your question is that you're going to have to feel that it was successful. I'm not sure there are, there are clear metrics yet of success. We're going to kind of get to the end of this with everyone feeling that the world has made progress on this issue. And that is a really hard task for the presidency. I mean, you've had a meeting of the ministers. We've obviously not had the outcome perhaps we would have hoped for around coal-fired power stations. I guess on the back of that, has that changed how you feel about our run-up into COP26? I think it would have been great if we'd had more progress among the G20. And I think it would have been great if we'd had stronger progress towards the full phase-out of coal. That is an essential precondition of success. So it's no good having countries like Indonesia committing to coal beyond 2050, for example. You know, that is just not going to wash. So it would be nice if we'd made pro- more progress on those things, because I, I regard them, I suppose, as, the, as some of the easier issues. But I still feel that the COP itself is in a good place, actually. I, I feel like the potential, at least for this to be a real moment, and that I say that for a number of reasons. One is that I think the UN needs this to be a success because the, the, the whole idea of multilateral approach to, to this issue and to other issues is under threat at the moment, thanks to COVID. So there's a sort of need for the UN to deliver. I feel that the UK needs to demonstrate it can do this too. I mean, this idea of the presidency is a, a big moment actually for the UK because this is the post-Brexit moment to demonstrate that we are still at the table and able to broker these big uh, negotiations and agreements. And I also feel that coming out of the pandemic, and I hope we are coming out of the pandemic, and I suppose that's debatable, but this is a moment again for the world to come together and, and to focus on what I think is a much bigger challenge overall than, than a pandemic uh, climate. So those are kind of three non-climate reasons to think that the, the COP really does need to be a success. And then there's the, the general issue, of course, the, the most important issue of all, which is that I feel that climate change is now actually registering among people living around the world and it's filtering up to world leaders. There is a real feeling now of the need to act on this. The, the recent news we've had from North America and the heat dome, the floods on the, on the, on the continent, uh, even the flash floods very recently in London. These are all now events that are being attributed in the public discussion to climate change itself. Uh, wildfires happening around the world, this is a kind of regular occurrence now, breaking temperature records. I think there is now an easier connection in the public consciousness between those events and the need to actually address them properly with um, action on on reducing emissions. So I, I, I still feel like COP26 is heading in a, in a strongly positive direction. Do you feel like the direction of travel is from the public through to ministers and world leaders or is it the other way around? It's in the press all the time now that, that mainstream media pick it up. Is that putting pressure on ministers or do you think that they get it already? I think they get it already, but I also think that the pressure is moving them on it too. I mean, I can only really reflect on the UK position. So, I mean, it may be different in other parts of the world, although I suspect the same pressures come into play. I definitely feel like ministers, politicians generally, have moved on, almost all of them at least, from discussing whether this is a real issue into accepting that something must be done about it. 
I also feel that the last four years has been pretty remarkable in terms of the UK grabbing climate change as a way in which to demonstrate at home that it's got progressive credentials as a government, but also externally to project a new brand of international reputation. It's been quite amazing to see that come together. What we've missed, of course, from all of this is the, is the real progress on, on actually tackling these big targets that they've been willing to set in the UK. So for me, that's the proof of the pudding. Bring together these, I hate the term world leading targets. <laughs> you know, it's a kind of, how do you, I mean, how you kind of a target that leads the world? I don't know, but it, this willingness to set in law really tough targets on the advice of a technical body like the Climate Change Committee. That's impressive to, to be willing to do that. So we've had that now for two or three years, willingness to listen to the advice that we've been offering. We've got to turn that into something that looks more like a, a strategy and a policy programme that, that's fit for the purpose that we need it to deliver. That means having a much stronger policy programme prior to the COP. And if we do those things together, then I sort of feel that ministers are in a, actually a really strong position to project properly on this. And I, I kind of feel that's what they themselves want to do. Although there's all sorts of alarm bells ringing at the moment about whether Number 10 and Treasury are going to pay for all this. It's a proper moment, really, where I think we'll, we'll know a lot more about whether these credentials are real and earned in about six months' time. And it sounds like there's almost a policy gap between where we are now and when we hit COP26, if I've understood you correctly. So is there a, some sort of roadmap in place to, to close that so we do hit COP with, with a clear view of what next, if you like, and, and, and what that sort of policy and the strategy will be? Or is that something we're still hoping for? There's definitely a policy gap. So it's as simple as that. So, I mean, you can look at the gap on, on both sides of the climate issue, and, and we are required to look at, at both adaptation, so how well adapted we are to the climate risks themselves, and mitigation or net zero, you know, to the other side of it. The net zero stuff is what's been getting all the attention, but we've got massive gaps on both sides. Um, and we've just completed in the CCC five yearly cycle that we go through under the Climate Change Act of offering advice on the climate risks. We did that in the last few weeks and then offering advice on the next set of carbon targets. We did that back in December. And what you see when you look at progress on adaptation is a massive gap. So we are not nearly in the right place when it comes to responding to the climate risks themselves, which is very problematic. An even more glaring gap on net zero and I say it's even more glaring because the government has, since 2019, been talking about net zero as a priority, and yet we haven't brought policies into play to actually close the gap. Just to give you a sense of the size of that gap, what we do in our assessment is we try to look at the government's ambition for cutting emissions, first of all, and you do see a shift there. So you've got things like the Prime Minister's 10-point plan uh, shortly before Christmas. He, he, um, he released that, and it's had lots of things in it which were pretty remarkable for a Prime Minister to talk about, like the banning of, of new sales of petrol and diesel cars from 2030 on was a big, big statement of ambition. So there's this gap ambition that has changed quite markedly, but we still we think that that ambition is short. Ambitions that have been named by the Prime Minister so far would, would only take us 50% of the way to where we need to get to for the legal targets. And then we look at policy, which is slightly different to ambition because we're talking about fully funded, delivered policies. And the gap is much bigger there. So we think that in terms of the policies that we have in place, they're, they're only going to deliver about 20% of the emissions reductions that are necessary for the legal targets that are set out to 2035. So that is a massive gap on the policy side. So there is a plan in government to bring this together in a new net zero strategy. 
There is also a plan in the Treasury to talk about the fundamentals of how that will be funded and paid for. But we haven't seen a whole host of strategies that were promised by the government, like the, the heat and building strategy, for example, or there's a hydrogen strategy that we think is due imminently but hasn't been published yet. All sorts of things that are kind of missing that we were expecting to have seen in the first six months of the year. So there's now a lot riding on this moment in the autumn when we'll do the net zero strategy, also probably a spending review, definitely a budget, and all prior to the COP when you're going to have 190 world leaders in Glasgow talking about these issues. So I, I kind of feel like it's really coming to a head now that we've really, we really do need to tackle this policy gap that I've been talking about. I refer to it as a policy vacuum in June when we published our annual progress report. That is the way I think about it, that the absence of commitments is now being filled by voices that are, shall we say, more nefarious on this, that they would rather not see progress on, on climate. And you can see that vacuum being filled by people who are quite happy to um, point holes in the government's uh, strategy, quite happy to point out that this is this is going to be ruinously expensive, even though the evidence doesn't support that. So, I, I, you know, that feels to me like something that the government should really be trying to get on top of. There's a lot there. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is, isn't there? Let's be honest. I mean, I feel partly optimistic that it, in some respects, you know, when your feet are on fire, you, you do something. I'm also slightly daunted because... In my role as president of SOAM, I've had the delight of talking to a whole range of people from a whole range of backgrounds, including people within government, who have very authentically said, it's really tricky because we're all kind of working in our own silos. And my presidential theme is everything is connected, which is really easy to say and really hard to do. Kind of the reason I want to explore the topic and see where it's done well. So what you've just laid out for me, I guess, is is that challenge really, which is there are lots of reviews, there are lots of bits of policy gaps. And actually, how do you pull all of that together into something that is comprehensive and coherent and ultimately deliverable? Because we don't have any time to waste, really. So it's pretty overwhelming in some respects. Well, there's a sort of seductively simple way through all this. I mean, if you stand back from what we need to do, I mean, just to deal with the net zero stuff, it's actually quite simple what we need to do overall. We've got to get from where we are today, which is this high carbon economy. It may, be high, it may be lower carbon than other economies, but it's still high carbon. We've got to stop using fossil fuels. We've got to try and decarbonize electricity supplies and our energy supplies as far as we can. And then we've got to start using those clean energy supplies actively across the economy. And then that's not enough because you've got to do a bit more than that. You've got to start restoring nature and storing more carbon in the natural world. And you've also got to, along the way, change demand a little bit for the high carbon stuff that we that we use at the moment. Now, that's the sort of in outline what needs to happen, depending on which sector you look at. The, the kind of plan itself is going to be different, but it's broadly the same. I, I agree it's hard. I'm not dismissing it. But I also think that in outline, it's quite a simple thing, actually. And for me, actually, one of the good things is that it is of such a scale that it's almost a sort of do or die thing. You can't kind of incrementally edge your way towards net zero. You've got to really go for it. All the benefits that come from that will come because we know it's a huge investment prospectus, for example. We're actually going to have to increase the amount of capex that we do across the economy as a country to get to net zero. We know that that will require probably of the order an extra £50 billion of capital expenditure across the economy each year when you get to about 2030 and onwards. And because you know that, you can also try and push that to places that need that kind of investment for a, for a wider set of reasons. So I think there's, there's all sorts of good things that come from investing at that scale as an economy. 
not least the savings that come from using all these low carbon technologies and devices that we'll be using in the future, the electric cars, the heat pumps, etc. That will eventually result in a big saving to consumers. So there's a sort of big hump to get over over the next decade. And then these benefits really start to come through. If the kind of pathways that we've been looking at in the CCC were followed by the government, then you'd get huge benefits to the economy, uh, particularly after the next decade, as, as this stuff really starts to sing as a sort of engine of growth. Also, lots of wider benefits, like benefits to health, cleaner air, big benefits to the environment. They stand up on their own, actually, without, without thinking about the climate issues. So, yes, it's a big thing to do, but I, the fact that it's big and the fact that we've got to do everything in unison is, to my mind, actually quite an appealing aspect of it. It becomes more of a sort of national mission and very achievable one at that well i'm going to take that narrative because i like it and hold <laughs> on to it this series of let's talk when is sponsored by thames water and it's thanks to their support that it's possible to bring this podcast to you if your organization would like to find out more about sponsoring an episode in this series or even a future series of let's talk when just go to let's talk to get all the information you need what about individual responsibility here so we've talked a lot about you know at the absolutely largest scale cop and policy and that absolutely is important but for most people in the world that will feel quite removed from them and as somebody who is just about to embark on a very modest building project to try and build a low carbon low water footprint home it's really blooming expensive and it's quite tricky. But for individuals right now who are wanting to either personally or professionally move, what are your reflections on that? Because it feels like there are some barriers to entry to a low carbon economy, financial as well as perhaps behavioural. I'd be really interested to hear your reflections on that. First thing to say is that there are lots of things that individuals can do to help on this journey to net zero, also to respond to the climate risks personally. But we will not get anywhere close to the climate goals that science requires or, or that are set in law if we rely solely on individual action. So we are all operating in a system, in an economy, in a society where the rules are prescribed for us in many ways. And I would just agree, I suppose, with the premise of your question that the, the signals to be an economist for a second are all wrong at the moment. It's a real mess of a system because it's difficult to try and make the the big steps that we will need to make unless you are wealthy, unless you're really switched on and really willing to make the kind of changes that we need to make in the round. So if you want to yourself embody a kind of net zero lifestyle, you've got to make some big steps and a lot of them are expensive. And it feels to me like that is not sustainable. We're not, we're going to have to make progress on this. The incentives and the signals are going to have to be different for people living in this country. That said, what the kind of things that we have advocated and recommended in the CCC coming out of our technical analysis things like diet change for example very controversial thing well we are we are recommending changes in diet that are well beneath the kind of guidance that you would find in the healthy eating guidance that's already put out by the government for example uh, we're talking about having more energy efficient homes a lot of the things that you can do in the home might be disruptive things like putting insulation in lofts but it doesn't tend to be that expensive your personal carbon budget will be driven a lot by not just what you eat, but crucially what you do to travel. Flying a little less if you're wealthy enough to fly a lot makes a big difference to actually some of the things that we've been talking about. So I kind of feel that there are a certain set of things that individuals themselves can do, but it doesn't fall to individuals to fix this particular problem. We really do need governments to step up, to set out the kind of strategy 
that I think we will need as a country to guide us so that people working in jobs right now, corporates who want to know where they should put their investment, need to understand what that looks like. We need the Chancellor to change some of the incentives to invest and to buy and to, and, and to consume the right things. Top of the pile there is energy. So as a consumer, we have a, a real mess of signals coming through your energy bill at the moment. So if you have a gas boiler, I do have a gas boiler. Most people do in this country. There's a tax discount on the use of that gas. There's no kind of attempt really to put any sort of carbon price on gas consumption at the moment. And yet electricity, the green stuff, the stuff that we've been progressively cleaning up, has this big cost sitting on it on the electricity bill, which is all the policy costs of decarbonisation to date. So you get this kind of real mess of a signal there. Chancellor's almost directing us towards the fossil fuel rather than the cleaner alternative that we know we'll need in the future. So there's a kind of thing, a set of things there that need to be looked at. The other big one is the transport taxes. If the Prime Minister is correct and if we stop selling petrol and diesel cars and vans by 2030, then the Treasury's got 28 billion reasons to worry about that in the form of dwindling fuel duty revenues. So we'll need better signals from the Treasury and we'll need to accept the fact that for some of this big transition that's ahead of us, there are real costs that we cannot expect consumers or private businesses to shoulder. The two areas where you get the big costs are in heat decarbonisation, so moving off gas boilers, moving off fossil fuel uh, forms of heating, and in industry decarbonisation as well. So just think about that political challenge. That's basically homes and jobs. That's where the two big costs arise. The savings come in other areas, particularly in transport. It's actually cheaper to decarbonise the UK's surface transport system than to not. There is a sort of recipe here that could work overall when you think about managing the costs of, of raising some money from the transport transition to help pay for the costs of the heat transition and the industry transition. And if we do that right, if we get the incentives right, then individuals will understand what to do. And I think it will not feel like we're doing something that's nearly as difficult as some of the commentators like to present, present it as. Something that I'm just reflecting on listening to you speak is about the politicisation, I suppose, of some of these decisions. And often in the UK, obviously, we have the National Health Service and it's often talked about whether we should almost take that out of politics so that we can think about things in the very long term. And I wonder whether that's something you've ever considered from a climate change perspective. Do you think that the political lens and when we change governments, the impact that that has on something that's so critical but also so long-term as climate change is important, is even <laughs> is even a consideration? This is the, the central question of the age, isn't it? It's the extent to which political systems throughout the world can actually deliver the things that we need to deliver on climate change. The, the, the kind of strange thing with climate change is that Broadly, most people now, the vast majority of people accept that climate change is happening and that it's being caused by what humans are doing on the planet. The oddity is, though, that despite that sort of knowledge, it moves just slowly enough that we don't really experience the heating up of the planet. What we see is the manifestation of that. We might notice that wildfires are, seem to be more frequent, that storms seem to be more intense, that the periods of heat waves is longer than it used to be, that the temperature overall is a bit higher. But it doesn't feel like a, an emergency in the sense that a pandemic might. There's a real issue there, I suppose, because this is when politics and, and government come in. You need something to be in place to guide us over what is actually in, you know, in the planetary terms, a very, very short period, a, a small number of decades to move from where we are now to where we need to be in, let's say, 30 years, 40 years. It will require a certain brand of enlightened leadership from our political leaders. 
So that hasn't been something that we've seen much of recently, if I'm honest. I, I happen to think in the UK we're better placed, actually, because the Climate Change Act sort of recognised all of that, and it's a pretty strong piece of legislation. We've had it since 2008, and it basically set up this idea that climate change involves doing something over the medium term, or let's say long term, out to 2050, that that needed to be a law. So we've got to get to what's now a net zero target. It was once a, an 80% reduction target by 2050. It's now 100%. We've kind of upped the ambition as the scientists has told us we need to, but you've got that long-term target. Then you've got these shorter-term targets every five years, which we call the, the carbon budgets, but crucially they're set 12, 15 years out. So you get this sort of slightly longer-term outlook from the next the next set of targets. We offer the advice on all of those targets. It's our job in the, in the Climate Change Committee to offer the technical advice on that. And the really cute bit, I suppose, the clever bit about the, um, the Climate Change Act is it puts the responsibility on the government to meet those targets. And it's a sort of ongoing process. So far, we've always met the legal targets and long may that continue. I think that has helped to change the discourse. I mean, ultimately, it needs to be parliament and politics that delivers these things because, you know, you can rip up a piece of legislation. But there isn't really any sense that the consensus politically amongst the mainstream parties, at least, is still there on the need to tackle this stuff, and and I know that other countries around don't have, around the world don't have that that set of circumstances. So I feel quite fortunate to have it in this country. I also feel a lot of responsibility to make sure that we keep that going. It's the job of the CCC to act as the oversight, I suppose, of that framework. But um, so far, it's it's worked well enough. It would, of course, be better if it was if progress had been quicker and and if we'd had even more ambition to go to to go faster on, on this transition. If we think back to COP26 now, so we've kind of talked about the policy and the strategy and then the individual responsibilities, but going back to COP26, if I gave you a, a magic wand, what would you ask for? What would be the thing that you would really want as the big takeaway from, from COP26 later this year? I would love with my magic wand in Glasgow for it to feel like a real moment globally for us to have properly turned our attention towards actually tackling climate change. I feel very much that the themes that the presidency has, has put in place already, the focus on one and a half degrees, the need to make sure that the climate finance is in place, the need for proper resilience and adaptation, they're the right themes. But what I would love to see is some proper action against those themes. And, and I might add just a bit more than that. So yes, we need the sort of 2030 emissions targets. We need the willingness to put $100 billion of finance in place to support climate action in the developing world. We need all that stuff, all that technical stuff that I know we'll be talking about. But what I really want, I suppose, with my magic wand is for that to not feel like a miserable process of agreeing because someone else says it must be done, the science says it must be done. I would love to see our world leaders actually lean into this and embrace it because the transition is so positive overall for the societies that those world leaders are responsible for. That flip in the mindset is the thing I would really like to see in COP26. It's the thing I'd like to see in the UK as well. Not that we're being led by, led to this because we absolutely must do it, but that actually we want to do that. We are running towards these goals because actually it points the way to a more positive economy overall, or better societies around the world, better outcomes generally for people living in the world today. I would love that. So that, that kind of idea that the discourse itself becomes more positive around climate change and less miserable is the thing I'd really want to try and pull off with my magic wand. 
So, Mark, what are your initial reflections on the interview with Chris? Well, I think I was very encouraged. There's a sort of uh, a positive element, a sort of optimistic, and there's also a sort of pessimistic, and I thought he struck the balance really well. The reality of the situation was expressed, which um, I was pleased to hear. There was an overall sense of sort of falling short, which for me is, a you know, it's that how do you turn challenge into opportunity? That's about us all coming together and getting stuck in. I think we could think about the sort of reluctant divided approach or the positive united approach, and we've got to shift from one to the other. There was a lack of discussion about the role of nature and biodiversity net gain, which I think is really important. But at the same time, and that's thinking about COP27, there was a reality that there's no silver bullets. His description of some of the actions are sort of strands to form string and how we bring that string together to form rope but how we've all got to collectively pull together. Interesting stuff about legislation and how we're making some way in terms of the carbon budgets. But um, there is an element, though, also we take our easy wins, so we start to build confidence and momentum, and it's going to be a a harder road to follow. Um, But uh, overarchingly, it's a shift from rhetoric to action, and that's, I think, where we want to be. You touched on kind of COP15, which we've just done a previous episode on, the Biodiversity COP. And I'm conscious that Chris and I didn't talk about that. Do you expect to see much reference to COP15 at COP26? I think we're already hearing uh, terms like uh, nature-based solutions being banded around biodiversity net gain, climate positive nature positive i think all of that's really important one of the important aspects though for me is that uh, this isn't about nature or it's not about climate or it's not about water it's about more us thinking in a more integrated way across all those different communities where we're learning from each other and applying systems thinking well i would say this because my themes everything is connected i couldn't agree more it's easy to say i guess it's hard to do so as a water and environment sector in particular, what should we be expecting from COP, do you think? Let's just think about the, the context. The uh, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, they've just released some in- interesting facts. Extreme weather and climate-related hazards have killed more than 410,000 people in the last 10 years. We're all seeing it on television. The extremes of weather, uh, whether it's in Germany or whether it's in Taiwan or Japan or the US or indeed the UK. I think the water cycle, the reflection of shocks and stresses across the water cycle, what impact most people. The interesting thing is that whilst the COP, there's a lot of discussion about mitigating the causes of climate change and you could say that's a sort of energy conversation in in many ways. We can think about adapting to the impacts and the impacts I've just described. So from a water perspective and thinking about that water cycle, really important but I think we're also there's been a maturing over the last few cops where we're starting to think about how we build resilience to communities to critical infrastructure and increasingly the role of environment within that building that resilience and I could say the role of the environment also in mitigating and sequestering carbon and it shows that it's not just about one sector but it's about more holistic overview in terms of the way in which we might think about it. And is the way that COP is structured as an event, does it lend itself to thinking in a more connected way? It's not like a normal conference that you'd go to. There's a political side 
a blue zone and then there's a sort of engaging public and the rest of the world side which is a green zone and a lot of that diplomacy there's a pre-cop and there are also feeder events like Stockholm World Water Week for instance where there's a dialogue developing and where people are starting to explore those agreements and try and get as much agreement as possible I think the thing about the COP itself is about then putting more political pressure on to try and take... Well, I, I like to describe the enlightened few and then build momentum from the enlightened few at the rest. The importance of engaging people in that process all the way along is this is really important to everybody. This is our collective future and, uh, and our future generations. So the, the agreements that are made, it's really important that those are adhered to so that we are actually seeing change and uh, a reduction in the rate of global warming. Such a huge shock, really, with the US, who were so instrumental in COP21, then uh, backing out under the Trump administration. But I think we're, we're, I think we're coming back on track with renewed vigour with President Biden and, uh, and his envoy, John Kerry. So as a sector then, Mark, if we think about the water and environment sector specifically now, are we doing enough? So I've been really encouraged. I think the Environment Agency took the lead looking at net zero by 2030. Water UK came on board and the water companies making those commitments, which is, I think, is really positive to see. The acid test really is us seeing actual on the ground activity, a shift. How might we be thinking differently are we building or are we making more of the things that we've got? Are we reusing or repurposing? And things like circular economy become really important within that because that thinking is something we want to draw on. And then there are other things like the sort of shift to hydrogen and what role hydrogen might play in that. Places like Northern Ireland, water are already embracing. But as a water sector then, and also embracing with transport and how some of the energy generated from a wastewater treatment works in Belfast might inform public transport in Belfast and wider Northern Ireland. So we're leading the way in many ways, and I'm really encouraged. Big shift to renewable energy, the way in which we've looked at developing anaerobic digestion and going beyond that to extract as much energy as we can is really important. And also, I think a number of the water companies recognising they have huge land holdings and what they can do about developing uh, biodiversity and sequestering carbon through their land holdings as well. Do you think then that we could, I mean, we can always do more, of course, with what we're already doing, but do you think we have a responsibility as a sector to maybe talk to people that aren't already listening? And by that, I mean, not our existing clients, not our existing customers, but those people who are just not engaged in the debate at all. So I think we do. It is that thing, we've got to come out of our silos. I think it's starting to happen within the water sector that the companies are working together and they're engaging with the regulators and everyone's seeing that role. What we've got to do is look to other industries and see how we can work with them, share our learning, maybe stimulate this growing snowball <laughs> snowball of momentum. It's really important that we that we share what we're, what we're doing and look beyond water. We talk about a water energy nexus, a, a food water energy nexus. They're obvious routes to take our learning elsewhere. It's easy to say, isn't it? And it's 
certainly what I'm learning through this podcast series is there are pockets where it's being done really well, but in practical terms, it's quite difficult to do. Our policy framework's not necessarily set up to do that. People have individual targets to hit. I mean, COP, the biodiversity COP and the climate COP are classic examples, really. We heard that from Richard Benwell in our previous episode, you know, that they kind of came out of Rio, but then both divided and maybe we're seeing them coming back together. I hope that we can create some structures for us to be able to act in systems, not just think in systems. I think that feels like maybe that's what's missing. Well, I think we're shifting from rhetoric to action. The other connection that's really important, and I think uh, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Gutierrez, he's called for 50% of the total share of climate finance to look at building resilience for the most vulnerable people in developing countries. It's one thing us looking across our sectors, but it's also us looking across the global north and the global south. The fundamental thing is, if this is about common purpose. It's the only way we're going to do this is for us all to lend our shoulders to the wheel. It's a huge existential challenge. The biggest challenge we've faced in mankind's existence, I would say. Ironic, really, that the Industrial Revolution that brought us so much benefit also lit a slow fuse that has resulted in uh, our contribution to global warming. What's your biggest takeaway from the interview with Chris? Talking about climate change will not do anything to start to arrest the rate of global warming. We need action, we need collective action, we need alignment, we need understanding. Terms explained to everybody so we're all on the same page. And we need all to pull together on the same rope. Common purpose on climate change is absolutely essential. I would agree. My takeaway is that, you know, there's lots of agendas and lots of issues that people are hoping COP26 will resolve and maybe keeping it simple. What we want is a successful COP and actually having those clear outcomes that, that businesses and individuals can engage with might be the best chance we've got of doing that. I really hope that you've enjoyed hearing from Chris and from Mark today. Don't forget to subscribe to the pod on your usual podcast player to never miss an episode. All that leaves me to say is a huge thank you to Chris Stark and to my co-host, Dr. Mark Fletcher. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Nikki. That's it, everyone. Stay safe and I'll see you next time. Let's Talk Wem is produced by Bulb. B-W-L-B, Bulb. The best ideas, the strongest content.